<laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. There we go. He brews a cup of coffee. He brews coffee. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Coronado Coffee. If you never met Jared, he brews a mean cup of coffee. And if you never met Rachel, she brews an amazing one, too. No, he brews. She brews. No, she brews. No, she brews is not the book of the Bible. It's he It's brews. not, but she does brew in a fantastic cup. Yeah. If you haven't ever, ever drank a fabulous cup of Coronado Coffee, make sure you go on their website or just Google Coronado Coffee, and it's the one that comes up right at the top of that list right there. Yeah. But you know what? Let's get their website right here <laughs> just to make sure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Is it at the top? It might not be at the top. <laughs> I see. What are we looking for? Coronado. I think it's coronadocoffee.net, but I just want to make sure. Yeah. Coronadocoffee.net is the first result if you put in Coronado Coffee. All right. So if you want to check out their fabulous coffee, you can go on coronadocoffee.net and find out all of their amazing selections. But I want to bring you to my favorite selection, and that is the East Coast Blend. Hey, now. Which is Bible Dinger's branded coffee. So if you've never tasted it, it is my favorite way to make a latte because it makes an incredible espresso. If you have an espresso machine, um, honestly, it is my favorite espresso to make. Um, that it's it, it really provides amazing, amazing flavor. But also, a large chunk of your purchase when you buy a bag of coffee is donated to various ministries all around the world some against hunger some fighting against abortion some helping people eat uh there are a lot of different uh things that they donate to i think it's 20 percent of their proceeds go to various ministries around the world so if you're shopping at starbucks or duncan Make sure you start putting your money where it's actually being sent back to people in need. Come on now. By shopping at Coronado Coffee. Come on. Dot net. Anyway, that was not a paid ad. That ad was actually paid with love. love. Hey, now, hey now. Hey now. Hey now. Hey we now. We don't get a penny hey now. for uh, shouting them out. We get absolutely nothing. We're just passionate about what they do as far as donating to ministries. And I love their coffee and I love Bible Dingers. So that's why we do what we do. Anyway, if this is not noticeable, this episode is on brewing a cup of coffee. That is what this episode is on. Yes, it is. It's on Hebrews or she brews, as you said. Okay. Yeah. Progressive Christians would say right. she brews. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. We have or- to. If you're on a spectrum, it could be they brew. Z brews or they brews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Zy brews. Yeah. Or toast they, brews. The author of Hebrews actually has his pronouns after the word he. Brews. In parentheses. So it's he, parentheses, they, she, it. <laughs> brews. And okay. parentheses. Yeah. Brews. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Yeah. But we will definitely explain that later on in the title section because. It's essential to right. how the whole thing, you know, how did we pick the fact that it was he or she? Right. You know, we will definitely discuss that because it's very important. But before we do that, yeah, I d- we start the show. Yeah. Each and every show with. Yeah. Bible dingers ding or no ding. Yeah. The ding or no ding. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Nick. I'm here with Ryan and Mark, and we are yeah Bible Dingers. And we start each and every episode with ding or no ding, where I come up with a fun fact or a news headline, and Mark and Ryan have to decide whether it's ding real or no ding fake. And last episode, I brought the stump to Ryan. Yeah. And I would <laughs> say that I only usually win, and Saul, one of our patrons, always makes fun of me because he's saying that. I don't stump anybody. But in my defense, I think I always stump. Well, not always. <laughs> I most of the time stump Mark, but I never stump Brian. Uh, so the fact that it was the other way around last episode makes me feel really good. That's momentous. But I haven't stumped you guys in a while, and I don't think this is going to be the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Good to <Yeah>. know. <laughs> I'm kind of knowing coming in that I'm going to lose. Yeah. But... I am going to do it anyway. Okay. Because I want to talk about it. Okay. 
What do you guys know about England? A little bit. Like what? Um, they drink tea, obviously. Okay. okay. Crumpets, right? Uh-huh. The Queen. Is that where Wimbledon was? Wimbledon. I was watching tennis last week. Yeah. Okay. Wembley Stadium. Big Ben. Uh, the Ferris wheel. Uh, bangers and mash. Bangers and mash. Yep. Fish and chips. What kind of animals do they have there? Uh, fish and chips. Yep. Chip animals. <laughs> they have the bangers that run around on the street <laughs> and the mash, the mash birds. I heard they have some fabulous tea animals out there. <laughs> with the, the wild crumpet. And, <laughs> the cup and saucerous. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's pretty much what I know. Yeah. Okay, so you would find this very interesting if it's true or not interesting at all if it's false. I would definitely find That's it not interesting. Both at all. sides of the spectrum <laughs> could be. <laughs> but the queen, I wish I had a queen sound bite. I didn't think this through. Mm. The queen owns all of the swans in England. Oh, interesting. Mm hmm. The queen owns all of the swans. I uh, I think I have my answer. You got your answer, Mark? Mm-hmm. Tooting or not tooting? That is the question. What right on is the cue, answer? The British guy on the right on oh. cue. Yes. Yes. No ding. No ding. I think it's ding. This happens again. <laughs> well, the only good part is the fact that I come out a winner two episodes in a row mm. because I stumped one of you guys. That is true. So I always go with the winning soundbite. And Mark, you are wrong. So daddy wins again. According to British law, any unclaimed swan swimming in the open waters of England and Wales belongs to the queen. Wait a second. Wales too? <laughs> Wait a second. I just want to say. I just want to say that uh, there's a contingent word in there that haven't been claimed. Yeah. The law originated in medieval times when swans were a delicacy for the wealthy, but it still stands today. Yeah. Like a food delicacy? I don't know. Queen Elizabeth II also upholds a centuries-old tradition with the swans. Every year during the third week of July, all the swans in the River Thames are counted Thames. for the queen in a practice called swan-upping. Oh, I love when they swan up. Yeah. Yeah, bro. They, You know how they swan up, right? Teach me. <laughs> well, you know how it is, right? Yeah. 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 So, why well, why would I have to teach you if you know? How because it is. what if the listeners don't know? Well, I can't. I can't. Well, you can't see me, and so I can't show you how to swan up. But show me. I'll explain it. <laughs> Put me on spike. <laughs> it's when you do this. You know. Oh, that's how you swan. That. Up. Yep, that's how you do it. Oh, swan up. It's like playing seven up. Have you? You guys ever yeah, played seven mm-hmm. up? Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly all the exactly. swans. Stick their head in the water. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then yeah. one swan goes around and they put the thumbs down on the yes. feathers. Of the yes. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. <laughs> I actually forgot how to play that game. Yeah. I love that but game. What was it? You put the thumb down? You put the thumb up and somebody would come put your thumb down and you had to guess who put your thumb down, I yeah. think, right? Yeah, you had to guess who did they it. They would all go back and stand up front again. There'd be like five people up front. Everybody else puts their head down with their thumb up, and you'd have to guess who put your thumb down. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt like there was some running involved. No, no. That's no? Duck, duck, swan. Yeah, obviously. Oh, that's duck, duck, swan. That's swan, swan, swan. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Bro, stop trying to swan up me, bro. Sorry about that. Yeah. 
You saw when I did this. I was the one in them classes, young and but making it happen. Two up two down in Manhattan. Never had Gucci or Louis D. But this music, I swear that I did it in fashion. Don't got a rush. I got hours in this. You know that I'm really about action. Can't believe that they counted me out. Now we running them numbers just like how I knew it would happen. Don't got a cat to be fitted. Pay for whatever I'm living. When I die, put my name with the best of them just to inspire the rest of my city. They don't know what we had to endure. Young and was sleeping on fours. Went to all six, but I had us insured. Rapping that boys and girl couple on the tour. Guys, I really have to pee. <laughs> See you later. I suppose we can continue without Mark. I'm back. Oh. I'm back. I'm back. I knew that that soundbite was happening because I heard the fire in the background. Um, While I was working the soundboard <laughs> over here, I hear <laughs> in the background. <laughs> All right, so we are talking. Action is coming. Here it comes. We are talking about the book of Hebrews today. And real quick, I just sort of wanted to make a disclaimer here before we get into the book. The disclaimer is that Bible Dingers is mainly a podcast that focuses on historical context, such as author, audience, date of writing, etc. Now, we know essentially none of this for the book of Hebrews with certainty. And while we can't say we're 100% sure on any of the topics that we're about to go through, we will give some of the views and evidences behind those views. Uh, at the end of the day, this is a widely accepted book as canonical. It greatly enriches the New Testament as one of the most deep and complex books in the Bible. Definitely is. And like I said in the last episode, this is one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. Colossians, Hebrews, John... From start to finish, there's Christology painted all over it. Mm -hmm. And if you ever deny the deity of Christ or, or question where we get our foundational beliefs from, you can read any of those three books and you'll know where we get it from. There you go. Yep, so that next section is the title section. And we will discuss where we believe the title came from. Around 100 A.D., titles were added to the books of the New Testament for ease of reference. The title that was assigned to this book in those days was To the Hebrews. There is no actual identification of the recipients of this letter, though. And there's nothing that we could find in the book as to who they were. It is assumed that they were Jewish Christians due to the contents and references within the book. The writer of the book assumed that the readers had an in-depth knowledge of Judaism with many references to the history and practices of it, so we know that at minimum. And there were also warnings to not turn away from Jesus back to the Old Covenant, which implies that these recipients were originally adhering to the Mosaic Law. So that's, that's what the book lies out for us. We can see that uh, just simply by uh, doing a... a a read-through of the book itself. But there are some, there is some speculation on some of the details of this potentially Jewish audience. They're likely either Hellenistic, which is Greek-influenced Jews from the Roman Empire, or Palestinian Jews from around the modern-day Israel area. So you say, who are Palestinian Jews? If the recipients were Palestinian Jews. The audience seemed to have an intimate knowledge of temple rituals, and this would be true of the Jews who lived near the temple. Also, about the Palestinian Jews, it appears that the audience would be able to escape persecution by returning to observance of Jewish practices and feasts. And this sounds more like Jews that would be located in Palestine. Mm. And uh, the next thing I want to discuss is if they were Hellenistic Jews, uh, where do we get that from and who are they? Hebrews 6.10 speaks to the generosity of the audience in helping other believers. The Palestinian churches had a reputation for needing financial help rather than being generous with money. So the writer continuously uses the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, for his Old Testament quotes. And this was used widely by Hellenistic Jews and not Palestinian. So it can really go either way. Mm -hmm. It can be Palestinian or Hellenistic Jews. We don't know for sure. But one common thought is that it was written to Hellenistic Jews around the Roman province of Galatia. 
This would be near the Palestinian Jewish population. That gives you some flavors from the Hellenistic and Palestinian Jew camp. Still, some scholars think some scholars. <laughs> Still, some scholars think it was written to a group near Rome, but in reality, no one really knows. Nobody knows. Nobody Jeez. knows. Speaking the of trouble nobody, I'm in. did you guys talk about the author yet? Nobody knows but me. Not yet. You know who wrote it, Nick? I do. Well, nobody else does, but Nick. Yeah. I think wrote it. Oh, uh, what's that? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So let's get into who wrote this. This is the golden question, isn't it? Who mm-hmm. wrote the yeah. book? Actually, of the the, the first time that I met um, Jim Osmond uh-huh. was at the G three conference, mm-hmm. and I was walking by Justin Peters' ministry table. Justin Peters was sitting there talking to somebody. And Jim Osmond, at the time, I wasn't sure who he was. Mm -hmm. I just knew who Justin Peters was. And he just, he pulls me over. He grabs me by the shoulder. He goes, I have a serious question for you. I'm like, yeah, what's up? What's going on? Nice to meet you. Who wrote Hebrews? It's like, I don't know, man. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, seriously, who do you think it was? I don't know, man. Yeah. I was like, you should be telling me. Yeah. <laughs> you Did have a big, you have a bigger table. No, he, he, I think, I think he leaned Paul, but I'm not too sure. Mm, I can't, I can't call that. Like, I can't say that's factual. Yeah. I want to say he said something about Paul, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah. So I won't quote him on that. Interesting. But it was interesting that my first impression of Jim Osmond was him asking me who wrote this. Who wrote this? That's what he said. Did he? Yes. What, did you actually record that soundbite? From J- Jim Osmond. That's Jim. Yeah. That's how quickly he pulled you aside. Like, <laughs> that was the air. <laughs> well, let me hear it again. Who wrote this? <laughs> he ran over to me so quick. Yeah. Oh, that was him running to you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you don't know who Jim Osmond is, he's a fabulous pastor, and he was actually... Um, on one of our YouTube videos with Justin Peters, they're great friends, and they did an uh, a live a live Q and A where they answered some really tough questions. Um, so make sure you go check that out. YouTube.com/slash Bible Dingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, most people don't type in YouTube.com. I don't think to watch YouTube videos these days. Yeah. I think they just have a YouTube app on their phone. So just go to YouTube and type in Bible Dingers on the across the board. the board. Yep. All right, right. across that board. Don't cross the board? No, write it across the board. Oh, write it across the board. Yes. I see. Okay. YouTube board. All right. So who wrote this? As I said before, that is the question. What (laughs) is the answer? Yes. Today? Oh, we're going all the way. That is the question. What is the answer? So the question of the authorship of Hebrews is infamous. There is conjecture on a handful of possible writers, but no one actually knows for sure. Nobody knows. As early as 220 AD or so, Origen, who was an early church father, if you didn't know, he wrote, but who it was that really wrote the epistle, God only knows. Nobody knows. This is as early as 200 AD. So this was like not long after it was written. Yeah. Some of the potential authors of the book are, and these are the most famous views, and there's like 15 of the most famous views, yep. but Paul, Apollos, Barnabas, Luke, Peter, Jude, Stephen, Silas, Epaphroditus, Philip the Evangelist, Priscilla, Mary the mother of Jesus, Clement of Rome, Aristion, and many more. Confusion on the author of this book goes all the way back to the early church. I thought you were telling me Confucius wrote this. No, no. I was actually saying the word confusion. (laughs) Confusion on the author goes all the way back to the early church. There was a tradition of Pauline apostleship. That's not the right word. All right, I'm going to start (laughs) Authorship. Yeah. (laughs) So while I named like at least 10 potential authors that people do make arguments for. There's probably four main camps, I would say. There's Paul, Barnabas, Luke, and Apollos. 
those are probably the four main camps. Um, let's start with Paul. So, like I said, well, I didn't say it yet because I, we probably cut that part. So, there was a tradition no, of... you didn't say. <laughs> like I didn't say. <laughs> there was a tradition of Pauline apostleship, or at least... <laughs> Dang it, I said apostleship again because <laughs> I wrote apostleship. <laughs> Oops. Man. All right, we're going to get through this, fellas. So there was a tradition of Pauline authorship, or at least Pauline influence on the book early on in the church. Jerome and Augustine were supporters of Pauline authorship. Also, Clement of Alexandria believed Paul wrote it originally, and that it was translated into the canonical Greek version by Luke. Something of note against Pauline authorship, though, is that the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 3, that salvation, quote, was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So that that's uh, the key words here are attested to us by those who heard. So this seems to suggest that the writer of Hebrews did not hear directly from the Lord. And this would not, by any stretch of the imagination, be something that Paul would say. In Galatians 1.12, he says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then almost, I'd say like 80% of the books that Paul writes, he is continuously contending for his own apostleship to doubters um, and talking about how Christ gave him the revelation and he's a true apostle and things like that. So the writer of Hebrews is saying he's not an apostle. And so, I don't know, just comparing it to some of Paul's other books, I I can't really jump on the Paul train. Mm -hmm. Um, And he he almost always signs his name in his letters. Yeah, yeah, and talks about the people who are with him. Yeah. Like Timothy and Demas and stuff like that. All right, so... Tertullian believed that it was written by Barnabas. And there's also an early manuscript that has Hebrews titled the Epistle of Barnabas. There are also some relational clues that may point to authorship by Barnas, the writer of Hebrews. Barnas. Did I say Barnas? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. His name's Barnabas. Sorry, Barnabas. They call him Barnas. They did for short. Barney. Barney, yeah. Barney. The writer of Hebrews knew Timothy... Uh, we know that by uh, Hebrews thirteen twenty three, and he called Timothy our brother. Barnabas was also a Levite and would know the rituals and history of the Jewish people well. So there's some arguments for Barnabean authorship. Thirdly, there are a number of supporters for Luke's authorship, and honestly, this was my position for many years back in my college days. Luke's Gospel, Acts, and Hebrews all begin in a very similar manner. Also, the vocabulary used in this book is incredible. It uses a large number of words that aren't seen anywhere else in the Bible, so the author appears to have great intelligence, and this is well known and true of Luke. It's thought to be one of, you know, obviously the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but character-wise, Luke is thought to be probably the most intelligent of the New Testament authors. Also, Origen mentioned that many people of his day believed Luke was the author. And so this is the same person who said that we don't really know, but he was just stating, you know, close to the fact of when it was written, that many people in that day believed that Luke was the author. Why did you change your position? Um, Because I wrote this outline. Okay. Yeah. And fourthly, Apollos has been gaining tremendous popularity lately as a possible author. People base this on the likelihood of the author stemming from the church in Alexandria due to its difficult rhetorical style and the use of the Septuagint. Apollos was a native of Alexandria, according to Acts 18.24. He was taught by Paul's friends Priscilla and Aquila, which would explain some of the Pauline influences in the book. It appears that he eventually became just as influential in the early church as Paul and Peter, according to 1 Corinthians 1.12. This is the verse where it talks about, I follow Paul, I follow Paulos, I follow Peter. Uh He's right up there with Paul and Peter Mm -hmm. in that text. 
He also vigorously debated the Jewish people in public debate using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was Messiah, according to Acts 18.28. Like, this was his specialty, was debating Jewish people on the Messiahship of Jesus. Wow. And, of course, this is basically the entire substance of what Hebrews is. Mm-hmm. It's basically yeah. just an, an argument for Jesus being the Christ of the, that the Old Testament is pointing to. So, these are probably the four people with the most support for authorship, Paul, Barnabas, Luke, and Apollos. Although, honestly, and this is not me being biased, this is after researching, and this is just a fact, almost all modern scholarship does not believe that Paul was the author. And it's mostly due to that fact that the author of Hebrews says, essentially, that they are not an apostle. They are not one of the original apostles. So, Who do you guys think? After researching this, I'm leaning Apollos. Me too. I that was even leaning that way before recording today. Yeah, like my uh, Bible study I'm a part of was reading through Acts, and reading through Acts 18 um, made me start think about Apollos. Like maybe I follow Apollos, you know. I also think, and this is just my personal thoughts. Paul wrote many books of the Bible. Luke wrote two of the biggest books of the Bible, uh, and Hebrews is nothing like those books. You know, it's very different in the language and the style and things like that. It's it's very different from any other book in the New Testament. And so to me, it also is sort of logical that it would be an author that's not already, that we don't already know. You know what I mean? And so that to me is another potential argument for Apollos. Yeah. That we don't have any of his other writings and this is like And whoever did write this did know Paul's work very well. Yep. Because there's a lot of influence. There of is. Paul scattered all around this book. 100%. Um, but there are also those contradictory things that we would know Paul wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. But we do know what Paul did say. So whoever did wrote this, did write this, knew Paul's work very well. Yep. So it's it's safe to say that. Yep. I don't know where I stand really yet. I mean, Apollos is certainly a, a, you know convincing based on the argumentation that you provided. They all have really convincing arguments. Also, Barnabas has very convincing arguments as well. I only like laid some of the major ones out but if you spend an hour or two looking into barnabas as a possible author i think barnabas is also a very convincing argument you know well to be honest i don't find luke to be convincing at all yeah because he's a greek mm-hmm. right he's he wasn't born into this jewish tradition but the author here seems to know you know the old testament really deeply like he's you know been with it his whole life mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I defaulted to Luke when I was younger because my professors, a lot of them, believed Luke, and I just sort of went with the people who were smarter than me. You know what I mean? Yo, 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 when this was written. Yeah, when was this written? Uh, we will discuss the date of authorship. Uh, this book, this book, <laughs> this book was lightly written before 70 A.D. As it seemed like the temple rituals were still happening. These stopped in 70 AD along with the destruction of the temple. Also, the book also mentions that Timothy has been released from prison in chapter 13, verse 23. No other book of the Bible mentions this imprisonment, so it was likely later on in the New Testament history. Imprisonment of Christians became extremely common under Nero after AD 64. That places the window for authorship between 64 and 70 AD. And we can likely narrow it down towards the end of that time frame, around 68 to 69 AD. <clears throat> Action is coming. Action is coming. That's going to be our new soundbite for historical context, you think? Yeah, I think so. Meh. No. We can think of something better. Okay. But for now. Action is coming. Historical context. With very little known about who actually authored the book and who the recipients are it's difficult to attribute any historical context to this book we know in general that it was a group of believers who knew a lot about jewish history and traditions and were facing persecution it is within this context that hebrews is written as far as the content in the book it is also helpful to have an understanding of the old testament and the levitical laws 
You can listen to our Pentateuch episodes where we discuss some of these topics in depth. So make sure you go way back in time way. to one of our first recording episodes. Season one. Season one. And uh, we have a few episodes on the Pentateuch. Leviticus, Numbers, yeah. Deuteronomy. Yeah, and then we have um, the problems with the Pentateuch with... Uh, Adherent apologetics. With, yeah. So. Yep. All right. <laughs> the porpoise of the book, also known as the purpose of the book. So, again, with lack of context, it is difficult to attribute an original purpose. However, we generally see that the author was attempting to warn the original readers not to turn from their faith due to persecution. For Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the crux of God's history. Nice. Like the word crux in there? Yeah. Which comes from... Christian. Crucifixion. Yeah, that's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now it is time for... Everyone's favorite part of the show. (laughs) I wanted to do it a little early on that one. I like it. All right. There are two fun facts about Hebrews. The first one is, if Luke was truly the author of Hebrews, then he will have written more of the New Testament than Paul. Are you lying to me? He will be the number one New Testament writer if he wrote this. I actually hit that by mistake, but it was fitting. Yeah, it was. The second fun fact is that Hebrews is commonly observed to be more like a sermon than a letter. The writer himself calls it a word of exhortation in chapter 13, verse 22. And there are many references to speaking and hearing. Chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11, all these have references to speaking and hearing. James and Jude are also this style, so it is not unheard of that this is a written-down version of a sermon or speech. So, hmm. that's it. That's awesome. You know what time it is? It's outline time. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so, this book has one, two, three, four... <laughs> points or sections the first section is the culminating revelation of god chapters one and two and and these two chapters have various points that we will discuss right now the agent of god's final revelation uh is how chapter one opens between verses one through four in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the heir of all things, through whom he created the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprints of his nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purifications for sins. He who is greater than the angels. It, um, it talks about the agent of God's final revelation. It's obviously Jesus Christ. And then in verses 5 through 14, it talks about the superiority of the Son, as if verses 1 through 4 weren't enough to exalt the name of Christ. Uh, Verses 5 through 14 talk about how the angels worship him and how his throne is forever and ever. So this is one of the reasons why this book is one of my favorites, because it is just exalting Christ from the very first verse on. Uh, next is the danger of negligence, the first warning in chapter 2, the opening verses, uh, verses 1 through 4. So you know how all of your school teachers always said, if you see therefore, you'll question, what is it therefore? Yeah. It's, it's usually responding to what's right before it. Therefore, uh, in this and in this verse, in, chapter, uh, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, looks back to chapter 1. Uh, Therefore, since God has spoken finally and fully in his son, who is vastly superior to any other being, we should listen most carefully to what he has said. The verse say we must pay close attention. And there is some debate on who the we are, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, believer or unbeliever, where um, the conservative view would be that it's talking about the believer because contextually it just makes more sense. But there is some debate nonetheless. Um, 
However, whether the we are believers or unbelievers, whatever the message, uh, I mean, whoever the recipients are, regardless, the message still stays the same, is that you want to listen to the truth. It's presented to you. This is who Christ says, believe in him. Um, And then in verses 6 through 8, we see the son's solidarity with humanity. And this is where they start um, quoting. It's a direct quote from Psalm 8. What is man that you would be mindful of him? And people at my church, shout out Ryan, uh, as soon as they read this, they'll know, um, you know, what is man that you would be mindful of him is a direct quote from Psalm 8. We're singing that song all month long, Psalm 8. And uh, it's, it's a really important point to talk about if you consider your sin and consider who you are before a perfect, holy God. Um, who are we that, that God would even consider uh, saving us and loving us and, and, and sending his son Jesus to die for us? It just blows my mind that he would even consider all these things. And yet he loves us so much that he had a plan before time began. Next point is of chapter 2 is verses 5 through 9 and 10 through 18, the humiliation and glory of God's Son. For it was fitting that He, this is verse 10, for whom and by whom all things exist, uh, we could see a lot of language that we read in Colossians here, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through death, he was able to destroy the one who had power over death, the devil. Through his death and resurrection, he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So his humiliation um, seemed like it was defeating because they killed him. But he rose from the dead, and now he's in glory forever and ever. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that is the first part of the book. The second part is the high priestly character of the son. And this is chapter three through the middle part of chapter five. And it starts with the faithfulness of the son, chapter three, verses one through six. And in this section, Jesus is compared to Moses. And the writer says that Moses was indeed faithful, but Jesus is even more faithful than Moses. And from there, he goes into the danger of disbelief in chapter three, verses seven through 19. And this is where he says, once again, Moses and the Israelites, you know, are used as a, a comparison here. And the writer warns to be careful of having an evil, unbelieving heart that we may not fall away from God. He says this is like the Israelites who wandered the wilderness for 40 years and did not get to see the promised land because they did not believe God. All right. So that's chapter three. And then into chapter 4, it goes into the possibility of rest for God's people. And when uh, I was getting ready for this outline, this part actually surprised me a little bit because I connected it to some conversations that we had um, with Hugh Ross and Eric Oven and things like that because it does go into the whole seventh-day rest thing here in in chapter 4. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to our YouTube channel. We have many conversations in a God and Science playlist about creation and things like that. Anyways, in chapter 4, the writer here describes how God's seventh-day rest is continuing onto his present time, and it is possible for us to enter into that seventh-day rest, and that we should strive to enter that rest and to not be disobedient. So, I thought that was interesting, because when I first heard that argument, I was like, no, the Bible doesn't say that, but it actually kind of does, like explicitly. All right. Is that Eric Hovind's? That's uh, Hugh Ross's argument. Oh, that's you. Yeah. All right. So um, that's the beginning of chapter four. And then the end of chapter four into chapter five goes into the compassion of the son. And it talks about how we have a good high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way, but remained without sin. So be confident when approaching the throne of grace that you have a good high priest that can sympathize with you. And then there's an explanation of of that um, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and it it talks about here how every high priest in the Old Testament was called by God, and Jesus, Jesus also did not exalt himself, but was called by God, 
who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that is section two of the book. Yep, section three is the high priestly office of the son. Basically, uh, verse 11 of chapter five into chapter 10. It's a big, large chunk of the book. Uh, It opens up in chapter five through six, uh, verse 12, the danger of immaturity. And this is the third warning. So we have the reader's condition presented to us in chapter 5, 11 through 14. At this point, what, what he's saying is, the author is saying, you've read the Bible <clears throat> a long time, and you should know it. You ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles. In need of milk, you're in need of milk right now, and you're supposed to be needing solid food. Um, solid food is for mature Christians. And you're at a state right now where you should know this stuff. You should be teaching others, but you're immature and we need to keep giving you milk and you need to advance. And I think this is a very uh, applicable moment in scripture where, of course, we keep things in context. But we can ask ourselves a question. Are we in a church that only provides milk each and every week? Or are we in a church that's also giving uh, us exposition just verse by verse going through <clears throat> going through the whole Bible because that's what it's basically saying. Study and study yourself approved and, and take your knowledge to the next level. I definitely think in our society it's more popular to stick to milk all the time. And uh, it's easier. The solid food is definitely the thing that's unpopular. And when we see videos going viral and we see sermons becoming known, it's really not the solid food that's known. It's it's a play on words. It's uh, talking points. It's speaking you up. It's making you feel good. But it's really teaching you anything. But there is a needed remedy. And that needed remedy we see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. It's basically a call of action. If you're still there, it's time to move. Let's let's open our Bibles and dig deep and know Christ deeper than surface level knowledge. And there is a dreadful alternative if we remain in the state that we're in. And we see that um, in chapter six, verses four through eight. If someone who falls away is not restored to full repentance. So let's say you're in a church, someone falls away. It's your job to call them to full repentance, repent from your sin and come back to Christ and become mature and know your Bible and and know what God has for you. And it's like spitting. It's like spitting in God's face and crucifying Jesus again. This is what the verses are saying. It's it's like if you continue in your sin, there's a dreadful alternative. You could spit in God's face and and continue to not in a literal sense, but in a way you're re-crucifying Christ again, because you're like, it's meaningless to me. So again and again, I'll send you to the cross. Um, Like the end of the verse, it says, for land that has been rained on and produces a crop, it's useful, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless. Um, But you'll see this common theme with this author. He kind of gives you these really hardcore truths that kind of hurt, that kind of seem like, oof, that's a tough thing to say. But then he ends the chapter by giving you some encouraging uh, words. So, so he gives you that hardcore truth, which every pastor should be doing, that hardcore truth, but then leaves you with some type of encouragement. And in verses 9 through 12, even though the writer of Hebrews seems harsh in the previous section, here in verses 9 through 12, he encourages the readers that God is faithful. And he's just trying to encourage you not to be sluggish in your faith, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And even though, you know, we've discussed that it's very unlikely that Paul wrote it, it's very apparent here that the person was kind of quoting Paul a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Um, so this person is not saying imitate me the way Paul said that. He's saying imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So the language here is a little bit different than Paul's writing style, but it's still Paul's idea here. Mm-hmm. It's still Paul uh, inspired. Mm-hmm. Then we have the basis for confidence and steadfastness is God's faithfulness and inability to lie. 
In chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, we see the basis for confidence and our steadfastness, and that is in God's faithfulness and inability to lie. There's really not much that we can unlock here. It's pretty simple. God can't lie, and he's always faithful. So if he gives you promises, you will inherit those. Are you lying to me? No, I'm not, and neither is God. I know. Then we see in chapter 7, verse 1 into 10, the son's high priestly ministry. So this is where we get really in-depth about who Christ is in this section of of chapter 7. This is the meaty part. This is truly the meaty part, Mm. the person of a high priest. In verse 26 and 27, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So this is deep. I didn't even want to add my own words. I wanted to just read it to you. The verse really speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. And then we have the work of our high priest in chapters 8 through 9. This section is entitled, Jesus, High Priest of a Better Covenant. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one absolute. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. All right. I know you guys listening that are probably dispensationalists have an issue with my interpretation of this section um, of the law. But I think no matter what side of the law you are on, you can appreciate the clarity of this section. I think as much as we can debate about the law we can also unite in the truth of this section. As Paul says in Romans, the law is to show us how bad we are compared to a holy God. It shows us we are truly helpless, but God's work through Christ, through the new covenant, provides to us what we could never provide to ourselves, and that is salvation through faith. I am delivered! Hallelujah. 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 Anyway, next up is the accomplishment of our high priest in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Through his sacrifice, he provides what the sacrifices of the law could never provide. Christ wipes away every sin, past, present, and future. You know, in the old covenant, you had to continuously sacrifice animals all the time. All the time. When you did this sin, you had to do that type of sacrifice. When Mm -hmm. you did different other sins, you had to do a different type of sacrifice. You had to do X, Y, Z and what the law gave you. But Jesus is the once and for all final sacrifice. You don't never have to do it again. No one else has to die. And he has provided to you salvation through his death and resurrection alone. And we don't have to do anything. Come on. I am the Lord. God does it alone. Come on. Hallelujah. Come on. Before I start preaching a sermon. Come on. Let's get into the danger of willful sinning. The fourth warning of this book in chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. In chapter 10, 19 through 25, it kind of sounds like Paul here again. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. No. So, again, might not be Paul, but it's definitely Paul-inspired. But it's not just Paul that says it, it's God himself that says it, that if he has saved you, he's brought you from that old life and brought you into the new life, and he expects you to act like it. So let's not be willfully sinning, knowing what we're doing and being content with it, and continuously spitting in God's face, knowing that the sacrifice is sufficient, but that we need to start living for the glory of God. And the warning of judgment comes to us if we stay in that, stage and state of mind. In chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, we should definitely be scared of the judgments of God if we deliberately go on sinning, knowing the truth of the gospel. Um, The the fear might not be, oh, I'm going to be separated from him forever because you know that Christ is sufficient, but you should still fear his judgments. It's like having a parent in your life and you know that they love you and you know that they've done everything for you, but yet you continuously spit in their face and continuously disobey them as much as you humanly can because you know, oh, my parents got my back. That's not genuine love. Mm. And it's, it's like spitting in your own parents' face over and over again. But yet, we wouldn't do that to them, but we constantly do it to God. Come on. I am delivered. Preach. So, yeah. 
We should definitely preach a sermon on this passage here. It seems that we already have. We're, oh, we're trying to get you true. to go full preacher mode, Nick. No, nah, you don't want me to. Come on. I need 40 minutes. At Come, least. On. Come on now. Come on. How you doing? How you Come doing? on now. Hallelujah. No. How you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, you should definitely fear the judgments of God. And, that, and that's what this is walking away with. If you stay in your sin, don't do that. Continuously repent and work towards a life living for God's glory. Um, but like I said, you see this constant pattern with this author where he gives you this hard truth to be scared of the judgments of God. And then he concludes with the encouragement to persevere in chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Here again, this pattern is presented to you, ripping off the Band-Aid and then immediately running over and putting medicine on the wound. Aww. If you persevere in faith, you will receive what is promised. I like that little analogy there. That's you like cute. that? Yeah, that's cute. Oh, it's cute, right? It is. You will get what God promised you. You will get it if you persevere in the faith, if you stay in Christ. There's nothing, there's no sin, past, present, or future that can take that promise away. You will inherit eternal life with God. Yes, so that is, as was said, that is the, sort of the meaty section of the book. And in chapters 11 and 12, we get the proper response to what the writer just said. And in chapter 11, we get what uh, nerdy theologians call the Hall of Faith. Uh, this is just sort of a list of people who were faithful uh, individuals. And uh, it goes through different eras of history within the Bible. So it starts with faith in the pre-flood era, which, uh, fun word for you if you don't know it yet, this is called the Antediluvian Era. This is before Noah's Flood. And so the writer here says that Abel, Enoch, and Noah were all people of tremendous faith. Following that, we get the Patriarchal Era. And uh, the writer here says that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Sarah were all people of great faith. Following that, we get a list of people in the Mosaic area, area, <laughs> the Mosaic era, uh, and this lists off Moses, Rahab, and the people who marched around Jericho and watched the walls fall down. And then we have a, a list of people that are in just subsequent eras, just eras after. There's no like small time frame from here on out. And he lists Gideon, Barack, uh, Barack Obama, that is, mm -hmm. <laughs> Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and then he mentions torture and persecution victims and martyrs as well. They, he lists off several different ways that people could be tortured, uh, you know, getting limbs cut off, all you know, so on and so forth, burned alive, and... He says that all these different people are also uh, people of tremendous faith. There's a little phrase there at the end where it's talking about the martyrs and people who have to run and hide in caves and things like that. And it says of them that it says they are people of whom the world is not worthy. And I kind of love that little, hmm. little phrase. When I think about martyrs, you know, they're like amazing people, obviously, that are that should be admired. And I'm I'm trying to get um, Voice of the Martyrs on on YouTube. You guys know Voice of the Martyrs? Yeah, it's uh it's basically just uh it's actually a magazine oh. um, that just talks about the stories of different martyrs around the world that are you know, people that are currently being martyred today. So mm, interesting. I haven't had any luck. So if you're listening and you know anybody at Voice of the Martyrs, hit me up. All right. So that was the Hall of Faith. That is Chapter Eleven. Then it goes into chapter 12, which is demonstrating necessary endurance. And we have the example of endurance here of Jesus. And it says in verses 1 through 3 that Jesus endured the cross and the sinner's hostility against him. And it follows that up by giving us a proper view of trials in verses 4 through 11. And it says here basically that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves just like a father disciplines his children because he loves them. And discipline seems painful in the moment, 
but in the long term, it produces peaceful fruit of righteousness, is what the writer says. So he follows that with the need for greater strength. Uh, and this section, he's basically saying, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and continue in endurance in response to the examples of people with faith and, of course, Jesus. Now, why is he saying this? Because the Christians are living in a hostile world. And this is actually the fifth and final section of the book, chapters 12 and 13. And he starts off chapter 12 by talking about the danger of unresponsiveness. And that can be broken up into three sections. The first is the goal of peace in verses 14 through 17, where he talks about not allowing the root of bitterness to spring up and cause trouble. Because without peace, quote, no one will see the Lord. So, chew on that. Secondly, it talks about the superior the superiority of the new covenant in verses 18 through 24. And the writer here says that Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, essentially, uh, giving the blood of Jesus supremacy over the blood of Abel. And lastly, in this section, it talks about the consequences of apostasy. This is verses 25 through 29 that say, if you refuse to respond to what Jesus is saying, you will, quote, not escape, end quote. All right, and then we have the last chapter of the book, chapter 13, and this is basically just uh, regular everyday life within the church. Starts with pastoral reminders in verses 1 through 21. And I actually love these 20 something verses um, because it's very practical. I love, I really love the practical application parts of scripture because I've come to see that the more I apply some of this practical stuff to my life, the more joyful and at peace I am in my life. You know, I. I find that I struggle less with a lot of the anxieties of the world because there is a lot of necessary consequences that happen when you're not applying these mm. principles to your life. Yeah. So it talks about being honorable in all things, loving others, living above reproach, submitting to your church leaders, honoring marriage, and not being led astray by false teaching. It lists off many more things, but these are some of the highlights uh, of this section. And then finally, the writer ends with some final greetings in verse 22 through 25. And he says, uh, basically, my friends in Italy say hi. He has friends in Italy and they say hi. How you doing? And Ciao. that's it. It's the book of Hebrews. Yeah. It's good. I love this book. And not one coffee joke the entire time nick i can't believe it i'm disappointed in you like i said earlier this episode was brought to you by <laughs> coronado coffee get your coffee today at coronado.net and if you are not a part of Nation. then how do you do that ryan you go to our patreon account that is honestly the best way to become part of our community because you will be inserted into a couple different group chats one on discord one on instagram where people are constantly just ripping on each other and making fun of each other, and that's what we do. We just love each other in that way. Yeah. Right? We love each other by making fun of each other. Exactly. And th that's pretty true in life, you know? That's yeah. That's a sign of affection, I feel like. Mm. Yeah. Anyways, yes, we are 100% patron-supported. Uh, we cannot run this ministry without our patrons, and we appreciate them. We love them. If you become a patron, you also get some exclusive behind-the-scenes things. You get our episodes a week early. Also, we are converting all of our YouTube videos to audio strictly for our patrons. That will, That is a patron-only privilege so that you can listen to our interviews on YouTube without keeping the YouTube app open or paying for that YouTube Plus thing that they're trying to push that nobody yeah. wants. I do want it, but I don't want to pay for it. Exactly. Because I would love to watch a video and just swipe up right. and leave the audio behind. But so you don't have to day, do that. Exactly. If you are a patron of Bible Dingus for as little as $1 a month, you get all that stuff. Yes, but if you, for some reason, cannot think of how to 
type patreon.com slash Bible Dingers, you can always go to BibleDingers.com. And on said website, we have links to everything we do, including our social media, Nikki. Where you can find us at Bible Dingers across the board on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And while you're there, just give me the likes, don't pass and scroll. Don't pass and scroll. Hit subscribe. Hit follow. Hit like. And most importantly, ding on. Bible Dingers. Bible dealers embrace the ding. But I'm gonna be alright. You control my life, so I put my trust in you. You control my life, I put my trust in you.